Well, if you need a Bible, we have one, and we'd love you to have one. So if you want to raise your hand, uh, we are going to be in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Page number is on the screen. You know, we've been sitting for a few minutes here. Why don't we stand for the reading of the word this morning? 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint me, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors uh, of our church family. It's good to be together today, and obviously we're gathered in this new space. Um, It's going to be cozy, right, for the next couple of months, and then we'll move back to Centennial September 9th. But really feel this is an important time for us as a church body to really come together, to be forced to sit beside somebody else. So rather than waiting until we ask you to move in, maybe take uh, the initiative and move next to the person beside you uh, in the coming weeks. Well, as you probably have been able to tell there, we're in a new summer series. And you might say, what in the world's a series? A series is when there's a group of different teachings on a particular topic. And over the summer, we're going to be looking at the life of King David. And the subtitle of that is the ups and downs of faithfulness and why we actually need the true king. And the reason that I've chosen to study David over the coming months is one, whether or not you're a Christian, you've probably heard of David or King David from the Bible, right? The story of David and Goliath is a pretty popular one. Maybe, uh, 
Um, you have heard of Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. I mean, it's a very popular story. And so David is a well-known character to many of us. Secondly, David in the scriptures is listed as being a man after God's own heart, meaning that David's desires were similar to God's desires. And if I'm sure if any of us could say at the end of our life and the way that we lived, that we were people that lived as being people after God's own heart or had hearts similar to God's, we would probably say, yeah, like I did it. Like this is great, right? But then there's another side of David that many of us are aware of as well, and that David also had made some incredible big mistakes. And we're going to study some of those this summer. And so maybe you wrestle with that a little bit, and may, or maybe you actually can kind of connect with David in some ways, where you say, okay, he's a man after God's own heart, yet he made some mistakes. How do I justify that? Wait, I'm a person, I want to follow God and live a life and be known as someone who lives after God's heart. Yet I make some serious mistakes. And so that's what we're going to be studying this summer as we look at the life of David and figuring out for ourselves what does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus. But ultimately what we're going to see is that if it's all dependent on us, we can't do it. And we need someone else. Jesus, the true king. So before we jump into this morning's message, why don't you take a moment to sit, just to be quiet uh, and to still and just to check in how you're feeling Invite Jesus, invite the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to our heart this morning before we jump into the story of David's anointing. Go ahead. So Jesus, we thank you that we can gather in this space, and I just thank you for our teams that serve to help us get set up in new new spaces. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here, that you dwell inside of us, and that you want to teach us something new. So God, whether or not we are followers of Jesus here this morning, we, we want to now just be present, to be challenged, to have our minds challenged, and also, Lord, to have our hearts challenged, that we might then begin to live differently, to have our head, heart, and our hands affected. So thank you that you're with us. We don't have to doubt that. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's probably no surprise to many of us, but our culture is fascinated with stories and superheroes. Um, I'm going to admit it to you, but I have not seen Avengers Endgame. And those of you that are like Marvel fanatics are like, what? I've seen it twice. How come you haven't seen it? And, or maybe you realize that they're also going to release it another time and put it in the movie theater so they can up the, uh, the amount of money that it's going to make off the box office. And maybe I, I, for me, to be quite honest, the reason I'm not doing it is because I can just watch it when it eventually ends up on my television uh, through Netflix or otherwise. And I also realize that in order for me to catch up with Endgame, I've probably got about, what, like 14? to 20 other movies to watch. And I'm like, I just don't want to do that. And so I haven't seen Avengers Endgame. But Endgame is an example of a movie in our culture that has taken off and there's this fascination around superheroes. I mean, you can go on Netflix, you can go on television and see all of these superheroes are suddenly rising to some sort of prominence. Have you ever stopped, though, to ask the question of why is our culture so fascinated with superheroes? Why are we so fascinated with superheroes? Why are we so fascinated with these stories of, you know, and all of these stories, there's some sort of problem that needs to be solved. 
And generally, it's a superhero that is part of the solution, or maybe it's a circumstance, an event that needs to happen, and usually the superhero is part of that. Now, as I've sort of thought about it a little bit more, I think that one of the reasons that we love these stories is I think internally, they sort of mimic what's going on in our own lives and in our own hearts. That on the, on the big screen or in television, we can see stories of when there's problems and there's solutions and there's this hero. And many of us internally are like, I deal with problems. I need a solution. And maybe there could be some sort of hero. And some of us maybe even begin to think about ourselves as the heroes of our story. Or maybe some of us begin to think about perfect situations and scenarios in our life that would need to happen in order for there to be some sort of peace or solution. How about some examples, right? So how about our relationships? How many of you have ever believed in your own life or about the situations that you find yourself in? You know, I've got, I've got, I've got no relationship and if I were to have this particular person to enter into my life that would give me the perfect relationship, and then I've had a, a sort of a hero that would save, you know, my, my lo- be feeling lonely. Or maybe for you, it's, you know, if this change would happen in my family dynamic, everything would be fine. My family would be fixed if this particular situation were to take place. Or maybe it's your finances. It's like, okay, if I were to get this, this raise, it would completely fix my finances. Or if this person were to be hired rather than this other person, that I work with, you know, things would be so much better, and then everything would be fine. Or maybe it's your, your family. All of my family problems would be solved if, you know, this happened and when this, this person did this. Or maybe it's daily living. Maybe you live with a daily living, like, reality of a circumstance situation. If I would be way less stressed if, fill in the blank, I would be way less stressed if, you know, my kids behaved, you know, if my kids would quit being kids, or I would be way less stressed if, you know, everything would just be solved. Um, you know, maybe it would be, maybe we should move, you know, leave where we are. You know, maybe that's it. Or maybe you're like me right now, and I'm about to take two weeks vacation after one o'clock. I'm off for two weeks. And you're like, once I have vacation, everything in my life will be better. Right? And so, like, I, I got to admit. Now, you might say, well, what's the problem with this? I mean, Better relationships are good, like maybe a little bit more money at times would be of assistance, but here's the problem. When you put all of, all of your desires into this one thing, what you realize is that that thing's going to fall short. They always fall short. Things always fall short. I remember getting a text from somebody that said, you know, if I just had a husband, I would, like, my, my problems would be solved. And I was like, but then you're going to have husband problems. <laughs> like, they're not going to be solved. You're just going to add another issue to your life. And so what many of us realize is that's what happens. You get that different job, and then suddenly your job has issues. The new job has issues. You're always in these new stages. And this is part of what we realize is we believe that the followers of Jesus believe that we live on this side of Jesus' resurrection, right? That he came back to life, and so we have hope. But then we're awaiting his final return, and so we still live in the midst of this broken world, yet we have the semblance of hope, but yet it's mixed And so what do we do? And I think the story that we're going to study today of the anointing of David kind of, in some ways, hones in on this problem of what do we do when the hero doesn't turn out the way that we wanted the hero to? What do we do with that disappointment? And then do we have something to actually look forward to? So we're going to go back to the scriptures. So if you have your Bible, what we do here amongst our church family on most Sundays is we pick a text of the scriptures and we just go through line by line. And I give some commentary on it and I make some application uh, to our lives as I see it. So 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. 
The Lord said to Samuel, now right away you might be like, the Lord's talking to people. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel is a prophet in Israel. You can go back and read the story of how Samuel became a prophet in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. Fantastic story. And the Lord is speaking here to Samuel and he says to him, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now there's a little bit of also a backstory here. You might be saying, well, who in the world is Saul? Saul was the first king of Israel. You can also read the story of Saul becoming the king. And a bit of the story around that is that Israel looked at the other nations that were around them and they got jealous and they said, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel comes to them and says, guys, God is to be your king. You don't need a king like the other nations. God is to be your king. And they said, nope, we want a king. And then Samuel listed off all of these realities of what it would mean for them to have a king. You know, you're going to be taxed. He's going to take your men, you know, for war, all of these different things. And at the end of it, they said, we still want a king. And so Samuel goes to God and he says, God, they still want a king. And God says, fine, give them a king. And Saul is named the first king of Israel. And Samuel anoints him. He becomes the first king of Israel. And so here we're reading that that Samuel is now grieving over Saul. Now, why is he grieving over him? Well, if you know the story, you might not. It's not that Saul is dead. Saul is actually still very much alive. The reason that Samuel is grieving, you see it in the next part of the sentence, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. So why is Samuel grieving Saul? It's because God has rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Now, the next question then is, why did God reject him from being king over Israel? A couple of reasons. The first is Saul's disobedience. Saul disobeyed God in some pretty key ways. One of those was that he offered an unlawful sacrifice. The bit of the story around there is that uh, Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice. In those days, they gave offerings, they killed animals, and they sacrificed them on altars as a way to worship to God. And Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and, and lead that whole process. And Samuel was delayed, and so Saul said, I'll just do it. Big no no. That is not your job, that's not your responsibility, so his impatience drove him to disobey. Second situation for Saul was the fact that Saul failed to devote, at one point there was a city that Israel was attacking, and he was to devote to destruction everything within the city, and rather than doing that, obeying God, he, started his, he allowed his men to take some of the things that they wanted. And so Samuel comes to Saul and says, listen, you've disobeyed God, he asked you to do something, you said no, And so as a result, God has rejected you. But then there's this other second reason, and this one's interesting. And the second reason is God's providence, or you could also say God's sovereignty, his knowledge, and who he desired to be king. Uh, Eugene Merrill, in his commentary, describes it this way. The rejection of Saul did not force the Lord to a new course of action. Rather, God's action followed his omniscient plan in such a way as to use Saul's disobedience as the human occasion for implementing his higher plan. God had permitted the people to have the king of their choice. Now that that king and their mistake in choosing him had been clearly manifested, God proved the superiority of his own wisdom in raising up a king who would come in fulfillment of his perfect will. Fascinating. So there's also a part of this that God says, no, like there's going to be another king, but he's giving the one that I'm going to choose for you rather than the one that you choose for yourself. Interesting. So here's the situation. If we're to go back to the beginning of the verse, what's happening? Saul is, or Samuel is grieved. Why? Saul has been rejected king. He's disappointed. So as we apply this, 
Have there ever been, have you ever been disappointed in someone that you thought was going to be like the person to fix the situation? Has someone ever fallen short for you? Have you ever been disappointed even with God's plan? Like, I'm sure there's part of that too here with Samuel, right? He's like, God, like I thought Saul was the guy and now you've rejected him. Like, you ever been angry at God in that way? Have I thought this was going to be the way out? I thought this was going to be the circumstance or event? I'm sure many of us have been in that situation before. And so we can maybe relate here to Samuel. So God starts by asking Samuel this question. He says, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him for being king over Israel. But then he gives him instruction. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So here's the instruction. I realize that you're grieving over Saul, but I've got another king in mind. So I want you to fill your your horn with oil because when you find this king, you're going to anoint him with oil on his head. And I'm going to tell you where you're going to find him. And he tells him to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And among his sons is going to be the next king of Israel. He's given his order. He's now given his instructions. Now, as I was reading this, I kind of wondered, like, would Samuel be surprised by Jesse the Bethlehemite? Would this have been surprising? And it might have been in some ways surprising, but there was also a point in the scriptures where we read about the family of Jesse. Jesse comes from the tribe of Judah. If you remember the story of Jacob and his sons, and one of the tribes is Judah. And Jacob, as he's about to die, shares blessings over each of his different sons. And I want to put on the screen what he says over the tribe, over his son Judah. Judah, or this is in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. Says this, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 10, notice this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, it's a pretty ambiguous text, like in context. Generally, as part of these blessings, as a father was blessing his sons about, as he's about to die, there was usually like, okay, you can have this, you know, you can have this, you can have this, you know, sort of parceling out the land and property and different things. Judah is not told he gets anything. Differently, he's prophesied and says, from your lineage, your children's children, there will be a royal anointing on your family. The scepter shall not part from your hand. Now, if you know the story of the scriptures, which line does Jesus end up coming from? Judah. Right here in Genesis 49, we're being pointed forward. So here we have in the text, Samuel is given the purpose for his trip, right? You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to find Jesse. You're going to anoint one of his sons. How does Samuel respond? Verse 2. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. Now, he's assuming that word will get back to Saul that the prophet Samuel is traveling to visit Jesse the Bethlehemite. And that might begin to raise, you know, the hairs on the back of Saul to say, where is he going? And if he knows that he has been rejected as king, he likely will then assume, you might be going to find the next one. And so Samuel's response is natural. 
Saul's going to kill me if he finds out that I'm going to anoint the next king. If you study kingdoms or um, monarchies in this way, you, you will understand that there is a king and anybody that disobeys that king is guilty of what? Treason. So in this way, Samuel is potentially going to act on and to be, be to commit treason by going and finding another king, even though it is at the Lord's direction. And so Samuel's terrified. And the Lord said, <laughs> hilarious, okay, just, just read this in context with me. The Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord, to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. He's going undercover, right? Like, is that not what's going on? Like, he's not intended to be like, you know, it's not trickery here. It's, I've added another purpose to the trip. Saul doesn't need to know that. He can know that you've gone and that you're going to make a sacrifice there, but there's another purpose to your trip. Now, at this point, all right, we, sometimes we read the scriptures and we're like, oh, Samuel, you know, he goes and he just goes. But think about it here. Samuel recognizes the risk of his trip. He could at this point say, nah, I'd rather not go. I'd rather not risk my own life. Of course, then he realizes that he's directly disobeying God, but maybe he'd be willing to do that. Let's notice what he does. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Samuel obeys, and in faith he trusts God's promise and direction at the risk of his own life. The distance he would have traveled could have been anywhere between 10 and 25 miles. He likely had a servant guiding the heifer. <laughs> like, imagine Samuel, you know, he's walking along, he's got a servant with the heifer, maybe some other things that they've got. He's got to travel this 10 to 25 miles, likely on foot. He realizes the risk that he's taken into his hands here, and he goes. As we reflect on this, you might be then realizing that there's an opportunity to be challenged here of what is God asking you to do today, and are you going to obey? What is God asking you to do today? Are you going to obey? What are the emotions swirling around? And how can you rest on the facts of who God is and what he has done? You know, Samuel could have been overwhelmed by his grief and said, no, I've got, I'll go in a little bit, not now. But he goes, he obeys. What is, what is the challenge to us in our obedience? What comes next? 4B. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel obeys. He goes and he arrives at the city. What happens next? The elders of the city are like, Uh-oh, the prophet of Israel is here. Now, they're thinking... Who sinned that we don't know about? <laughs> you know, um, are we in trouble? Or maybe they're also thinking, okay, we know that there's this like little rift. I mean, it didn't come out through Twitter or anything like that, but they're aware that now there's this rift between the prophet of Israel and the king, Saul. And maybe they're like, we'd rather not get involved at this one, right? So like, have you come peaceably? Why have you come? And he says, well, yes, peaceably I have come. I want to make a, a sacrifice. Go and consecrate yourselves. And then we read that he invites Samuel, or he invites Jesse and his family to come. And so they're invited to come. 
And we read that he consecrates Jesse and his sons and invited them too to the sacrifice. Now the process of consecration, likely a change of clothes, bathing. Uh, some uh, traditions, if we look back at the law, they may have been required not to engage in sexual intercourse uh, the couple days leading up. Whatever it might be, they're to come ready to be reflective as they make a sacrifice. And likely here we read that Samuel has invited Jesse and his sons. He's likely now staying with Jesse and his sons. He's taken on the personal responsibility of, of consecrating them, being part of the process for them to be cleaned, preparing for the sacrifice. What happens next? When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Now, before we begin pointing the fingers at Samuel and saying, you prophet, you, always looking on the outside, let's consider again the situation. He's been grieved over what was likely a dear friend who he thought was the next king of Israel. He's now been commanded by God at the risk of his own life to go and find the next king. He's now gone undercover. He's arrived. He's gone through the consecration process. I mean, he's like, I am ready to meet the next king. I want the hero. Right? I mean, that's sort of what's happening here. And in walks the eldest, Eliab. Hmm. Looks like a king. Not too bad. He looks good. Samuel, like many of us, are desperate for good news and we're desperate for a hero. And so as a result, what does he do? He judges Eliab by the way that he looks. And actually, it's not the first time that Samuel does this. When Saul is anointed king, he also comments about Saul and says, look at Saul's looks. He's pretty good. He's taller than the rest. Not too bad. So in looking for a king, Samuel was attracted to the external without giving any consideration to the internal. Eliab looks good. He makes physical sense, and Samuel is desperate for the hero. Now again, I think we have to reflect upon what's happening here in the story. Have you ever been willing to sacrifice internal character for external beauty? Are you ever tempted to the appealing story, the American dream, Who or what is your hero story and why does it appeal to you? Is there actual depth or does it just look good? You know, this forces us to ask questions of our motives and our hearts and to say, why am I attracted to the things that I am attracted to? Is there actual sustenance there? Am I living for myself or am I living for God's desires? What happens next? Let's go on. Why does God reject Eliab? What is God looking for? What does he see? Very famous line from this, from this chapter. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, right off the bat, I'm just going to be honest about my emotions. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. That an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-at-once God sees through my flesh and sees not just my physical heart, but the motivations of my heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the external appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, your will, your desires, your soul. 
This is terrifying. So we got to ask the question, well, why the heart? And the heart is revealed when God is looking, but also when nobody else is looking. So some questions to reflect on. How is your character? How is your heart? You can maybe ask the motivational questions of what motivates you. Who are you when no one else is watching? Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this text, says this, We can tell how men look, but he, God, can tell what they are. Ooh. Sort of sends like a shiver down my spine. That's intense. Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 5, says this about the hypocrites, the Pharisees, challenging us about our prayer lives. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. You see what he's pointing to there and challenging these external, these, these people that were praying solely so that they could be seen? It's like their heart, they're not motivated so that they can, in prayer, be talking to me and be growing in a relationship with me. They're motivated so that other people around them will think that they're pretty religious and pretty special. Because God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want our activity or how we externally look, but he wants our hearts. So what happens next? I mean, we're all still waiting for God to show Samuel who the next king will be. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Okay, God. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these So think about being part of the situation. I mean, you're sitting there. Maybe you're one of the sons. It's like, okay, I'm coming before the prophet. Ta-da! Is it me? Not you. (sighs) Like sibling rivalry. Brothers. Is it me? Not you. Not you. How does Samuel respond? The sun cycle doesn't seem to be producing the true king. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. A couple of things to notice. First, the assessment of Jesse towards his son. He's the youngest and he's the smallest. You're probably not going to want him. He's the youngest and he's the smallest. Secondly, he's keeping the sheep, which indicates that he has not even been called for the feast and for the sacrifice. He's the runt of the family. He wasn't invited to the sacrifice or the feast. We need someone to watch the sheep. Who will it be? The youngest, David. David's probably about 15 years old at this point. Leave him in the field with the sheep. We'll commence and do everything else. Like, do you see what's going on here? In another commentary, it reads this way, Jesse, having evidently no idea of David's wisdom and bravery, spoke of him as the most unfit. Yet God in his providence so ordered that that the appointment of David might the more clearly appear to be a divine purpose and not the design either of Samuel or of Jesse. Because if Jesse had his way, it would have been one of the other seven. If Samuel had his way, it would have been one of the best looking, the oldest, in fact. Nope. God sees the heart. What is Samuel's response? Samuel here, in faith, is still holding and trusting God's promise that the next king would be found among Jesse's sons. And what does he say? We're not sitting until he's here. 
Go get him. Right? Verse 12, and he, Jesse, sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. What are we to make of he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome? Well, he's likely still in his shepherd's clothing. His skin is probably sun-kissed. As I said, he's probably 15 at the time. He's young. He's young, right? So it's interesting here that you might be saying, like, it's not that you can have a good heart and not be handsome, Right? Like, that distinction's not made in the text. It's like, David was handsome, but we're being driven to something else about him here. And what does God instruct? He says, this is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So what does this mean in him anointing? Well, he's now been given a divine designation to the government. It's now recognized, you're going to be the next king after the death of Saul. But it's also a divine communication of gifts and of graces. We read here that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. In the previous text, we see that the spirit of the Lord came out of Saul. God had rejected him. The spirit is now in David as next Israel's king. What this also means is that God clearly sees David's heart and his assessment led to David's anointing. Right? There's something about this 15-year-old's heart as he's taking care of the sheep, as he's been serving as a shepherd. There's something about his desires. There's something about his internal motivation, the way his character is formed, that is unlike the rest of his brothers. He is different. Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72, is a reflection on the selection of David. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. God saw something in David that David may not have even seen about himself. Think about this for yourself for a moment. Do you think David was out in the the sheepfolds and even being brought in going, I'm going to be the next king? Why? Because I deserve it. No, not at all. The trajectory of his life was not him to be the deserved one amongst his family and his brothers. You you, You maybe think of yourself not very highly. You think, I can't be used by God. I've got nothing. I've been overlooked, I've been mistreated. God sees you and he sees your heart and nothing you do for Jesus will ever be put to waste. He sees you. He sees your heart. He sees your motives. He sees everything. Matthew Henry again writes, Many a great genius lies buried in obscurity and contempt and God often exalts those whom men despise and gives abundant honor to that part which lacks. What happens next? Closing of verse 13, and Samuel rose up and he goes to Ramah. Samuel's completed his task, and we actually don't read much more about him other than a visit that David makes to him, and then it is death. But he's able to, to finish out his life now. He's able to, you know, finish it out. He rests, retire in peace. I've done what I was asked to do. I found the next king. Now, where do we go from here? <laughs> you know, what's the point of the story? Like, for you and for me, how do we connect with this? Do we go, well, I've got to really work away at my heart. You know, I've, I've got a bad heart. 
You've you're filled your life with messages of self-rejection. I'm a bad-hearted person. God will never choose me. God would never use me because I'm a person of obscurity. I'm not attractive. God will never use me. I don't have that spouse that I've always wanted. I don't have that job that I've always dreamed of. You know, what, do you, what do you do if you know, you're Samuel in this situation? Like, okay, we found the king, but then do you struggle with then like, putting your hopes and aspirations and desires into David? Because what do we then realize about David as things come on? And instead, as we read this text through the lens of the gospel, here's what we realize is that through the gospel, we see this story as an exposition of the corruption in our hearts and in the hearts of our heroes and our need for a true king and hero, Jesus Christ. Maybe I'll explain a little bit. Three things here. The corruption in us. There was a corruption. Samuel was the prophet of Israel. Yet he has corruption in his heart around what motivated him. All of us have bad motives in our hearts. Not one of us is innocent on that front. And the bar that is set in the scriptures around like when when you pray, for example, or around lust, or any of these different things. None of us make the cut. So we're not to look at this story and go, look, perfect David. Because then we also see that there's also corruption in the hearts of our heroes. I'm a DC guy. I like Batman. Batman had some serious demons that he was fighting. So not even like the hero, or maybe your hero for the last little bit has been Kawhi Leonard, and he's disappointed you, right? You're supposed to save us. There's corruption, not only in our own hearts, there are corruptions in the hearts of our heroes. David in Psalm 51 writes this, 7 to 10, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David gets to a point where he realizes, I'm corrupt. And if Israel had been like, look at David, he's perfect. He's the perfect next king. We have our hero. No, all of us fall short. And this story is an exposition that every single one of us have corrupt hearts, corrupt desires. And if God's definition and what he requires is perfection, none of us make the cut. Yet what, who does David point to? The true king and hero, Jesus, the better David. David points us to another anointed king who would come from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, a man whose physical appearance would draw none to him, yet whose heart was completely pure and therefore able to give himself as a substitute and sacrifice for the sin of David and the rest of humanity, Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior and anointed king. Isn't it brilliant? See Jesus. Saul didn't make the cut. David's not going to make the cut. We need another king from the line of Judah. Jesus. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids, but it's equally good for adults, finishes her story about David's anointing. She writes, God chose David to be the king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. And once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem. You'll find the new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem, in the town of David, three wise men would find him. 
And what do we know about Jesus? 1 Peter 2, verse 22, amongst many of the other things, is that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He is the one king that lived that we can have full confidence in. That he did, en- he did enough and he is enough to cover every single one of our false motivations and bad desires. And this is why Jesus had to die on the cross to take our place. He is our substitute. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus on our behalf because our hearts are deceitful and broken. Yet with Christ, we are changed. We are made new. We are transformed. And so we find peace and security in Jesus Christ alone. Now, as we reflect, beneath the search for a good story and the worthy hero is the God-given desire for God alone that we find in Christ. But as we respond in song here in a couple of moments, here's some questions I want us to reflect on. First is, what's the dominant story that you're believing? You know, as I said, I think many of us, we like these hero stories. One, I think it allows us to, you know, just not focus on our own problems for a bit to take something else in. It's also entertaining. But as you think about your own life and you think about the problems that you're up against, I mean, all of us have them. All of us have them. What is your good news story? As I illustrated before, relationships, finances, family, stress on daily living. What's your good news? What's your hope story? And then secondly, who or what is the hero of your story? Are you putting so much stress and pressure on yourself that it's like, I need to be the hero? I struggle with that so desperately. Like, I've got to fix it all. I've got to make a way. I've got to be the perfect pastor. You know, even this morning, setting up in a new space, it's like, you know, got to get everything just right. Who's the hero? Who brings peace in your life? Who... Who are you looking to to be enough? And friends, they were never designed to be the enough. Only Jesus is enough. So as you respond, what is the dominant story you're believing? Maybe you need to believe the better story, the gospel story, and who or what is your hero? My prayer is that you would be able to come out of this morning saying, I'm one step, I want Jesus to be my hero. I want to believe that he is. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you so much for this story. It's not a fictional story. It's a true story of you preparing us for a better king. And God, while David was a man after your own heart, he was also a man filled with, with deep, broken desires. Yet this is what it looks like to be faithful. There's, there's ups and there's downs, and we can live in those ups and downs because we have hope in the good news of you coming to earth to fix our broken hearts to mend the deceit. And so we hold on to that. And I pray this morning, God, that if we're believing false stories about ourselves needing to fix things, we're looking to somebody else, another human being here to fix or to solve our problems, or maybe a circumstance that then will solve things, may you just show us that that's not going to fix it ultimately. And Jesus, we need you. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I pray if there's anyone here that has never tasted and seen that you are good and believe the gospel, that they would do so this morning. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.